And welcome to the Professional Insight Podcast. Thanks for joining us live. My name is Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. I'm Josh Bond. (laughs) And Trevor Lindy. Thanks everyone for uh, joining us live today uh, on April 29th, um, 2022. So just a little bit of updates before we begin. Uh, we do now have a email address. So um, the email address is now connected. So if any of our listeners or watchers have a topic or have a uh, question while, you know, that you want us to ask another professional, uh, if we don't have the answer, we will find it out for you and potentially bring them on the show. And that is info at professionalinsight.ca. That's info at professionalinsight.ca. Alternatively, you can just do whatever you do on the side here with the Twitter and Instagram, not Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And then uh, another thing that we're going to be doing, we're going to be trying to do on every episode is a poll uh, that we, you know, want to connect the previous episode. Isn't that right, Collins? Right. So the poll that we're going to do on our YouTube channel, extremely important. It's huge. It's it, it, it had a lot of debate at the last, uh, the last podcast. And that is, do you agree with Trevor that friends and even family, even family can't go to the bathroom (laughs) in his RV? All right. We mean, take take a shit. What's that Trev? It's not that you can't go to the washroom in the RV. Let's be very clear. We can't take the number two in the RV. So family can't. Trevor's the only one that can. So uh, he never qualified that. Is he allowed? Like, does does he allow himself to do it? I don't know. Trev, can you? I heard he he doesn't go number two. Say what? Yeah, I I have no bowel movements, apparently. Is that what we're trying to say? Kim Jong-un? Is that who it is? That's uh, North Korean? leader doesn't yeah doesn't pass and and we should also say that me and curry have a lifetime mission to make that happen with ourselves lifetime. it is a because lifetime. i do make bowel movements on a regular basis <laughs> and i'm gonna get your keys one day and me and curry are gonna take turns <laughs> and you will smell so us. that is the that's that that's the poll that's the poll so if you guys could vote that'd be great uh, let us know. And, and you know what? We're fine if we're wrong. If we're fine if Jeff and I are wrong. We're, we're okay to accept that. Um, but we're just curious if you guys have the exact same rule. Um, we accept bowel movements as a part of life. And uh, we want to share that with our friends. Absolutely. Totally agree. <laughs> um, so the other thing, uh, 
is uh, great topics today. We had some great uh, interaction from the last episode live and then also subsequently after. So we're going to be talking about a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I will be dissecting the Ontario budget, which was tabled yesterday, um, Thursday, <coughs> April the 28th. Um, and I'll dissect that uh, high level and breaking it down to for everybody. Uh, Bondo, you're going to be tackling um rental resale rental properties and in particular uh those that are tenanted and how uh the pitfalls of having tenants in there and your requirement to get rid of them before closing uh, based again on the language within your agreement and in particular the clause that deals with your tenants i'm sure jeff you'll have a thing or two to say about that as well i'm trevor will too mm. you know the tenant stuff and then collins you're going to be tackling I'm going to tackle something that actually happened last night that I thought would be a good uh, topic right away. It's it's kind of frustrations in the current real estate market, okay. and it's it's partially because the markets have changed or or the environment has changed where it's not as extreme sellers market, and there's still some tactics that are taken on by listing agents that are frustrating the market and buyers, and it's helping to cool the market. And it actually happened last night. I went to a uh, a super sada night at uh, John John Michaels. And during the time I was there, I was negotiating on, a, on an offer. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that because I think it's a hot topic right now that's frustrating okay. many buyers. Awesome. And Lindy, what are you going to be? A uh... lot of questions about uh, variable oh. rate discounts and how they work. All right. So th we've got a couple of hot topics that are happening right now. So we'll go with Lindy first, um, because that is definitely a topic, uh, a very topic of conversation. I'm having this conversation all the time with clients about whether you lock in or whether you don't, or should it go variable? Should it go fixed? How do the discounts work? So, uh, Trev, if you want to just start off explaining how do the banks decide what a fixed rate is and how do they decide what a variable rate is? And then we'll work on, the discounting piece okay sure so variable excuse me fixed rate uh is driven by bond yields <coughs> so the bond yields uh um as they fluctuate up and down it's it basically how the banks go and get their money i guess is the best way to put it uh cost of funds uh and that kind of ties into both what we're going to discuss when it comes to variable so uh, the fixed rates as the bond yields uh, fluctuate, this is where we see, um, and, and part of it has to do with market, right? It's what's happening out there in the market. So we do see that uh, fixed rates have gone up and that has a lot to do with just communication from the Bank of Canada uh, and various uh, economists around the country talking about inflation and trying to tamp that down. Uh, so in, by doing so, raising rates, um, variable rate being driven by the Bank of Canada, we've talked about previously. Um, and in, in talking about the, the Bank of Canada, what actually happens is there's a term called CDOR, uh, the Canadian dollar offer rate, uh, is technically what happens when it comes to variable. Uh, this is again, cost of funds, how the bank go and get their money. Um, and uh, it, it, this is more like a guideline, um, because like I was saying, a lot of people are asking, you know, if we, if we rewind 12 months ago, uh, even six months ago, we were seeing discounts on prime where it was prime minus, uh, one prime minus one. I think literally they got as deep as like prime minus 1.3, 1.4 in that range. Um, so a lot of people are wondering like, why are those gone? Why is the minus 
portion of the variable rate gone now. Um, you know, we're seeing prime minus one at the very best, and that's for an insured mortgage, meaning less than 20% down. Uh, in insurable transactions, 35% down minimum, purchase transaction, primary residence, or secondary home. Uh, but everything else has really gone down. Uh, we're seeing uninsurable transactions uh, with rates prime minus 0.4. Uh, so only 40 basis points off of prime now. And the question is, well, what's happening? And obviously the cost of funds is a big thing for banks, lenders, credit unions. And basically they take that CDOR rate, the, the Canadian dollar offer rate, and in theory, add 200 basis points. And this is kind of how they do the math. So if you look back and, and you know, I can share, uh, uh, I don't know how to get there. Let me just see if I can do it. Uh, here we yeah, go. Yeah, do that definitely. And there I'll we just, go. Can, if everybody can see this, we've got that CDOR right there. Is yep, that up? Perfect. Okay, yep, awesome. Yep, you're good. So we can see most recently, April 28th, yesterday's date, we've got 1.35%. So if we were to add 200 basis points to that, uh, that would give us 3.325%. Right now, the post, excuse me, the, the variable rate is sitting at 3.2. So because we're in excess of that 3.2, that gives us the ability to have discount, okay? That's where the banks, lenders, and credit unions can offer steeper discounts to consumers. If we were to rewind to March 28th, so a month prior, when before the Bank of Canada announced their half a point rate increase uh, to us at the beginning of April, you can see, so at that time, it was 2.7%. And the CDOR rate was 0. Uh, 0.905. If we add two basis points to that, 200 basis points, excuse me, that puts us at 2.90%. So you can see the difference between the two. Um, you know, there, there's a little bit more, uh, uh, there's a little bit extra room, I guess you could say, when it comes to the pre-increase, pre-April increase back in March compared to what we're seeing right now. Um, and that's really kind of how it ties in and plays with those variable rate discounts. As those margins shrink for the financial institutions, they don't have the same ability to offer as competitive of a rate. So basically what you're saying, I guess, is they want to stay competitive on the, the offer, right? Like, let's say, you know, they want to stay competitive, but their cost of funds to borrow have increased. And so the margin between what they're offering the public and, uh, oh, hey, hey there, Dean. Um, and, uh, and the, 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 the cost of funds. So the, the CDOR rate 1.32. So if you actually look ironically, Trev, the 90 basis points. So remember a hundred basis points to our listeners is 1%. If you just think of it that way and 90, it was not 0 0.90 and change. And now yep. it's 1.32. So there's your 40 basis point spread on how they can only offer 40 basis points when compared to the, the, the previous time. Right. Well, the discount itself, like that you're referring to, it, it yeah. doesn't exactly the when there is a larger gap between the C door and plus 200 basis points, that's where they're going to get um, the added, uh, where the banks are going to have more latitude to offer more aggressive discounts. 
if we were in a situation where that margin was uh, inverted, so instead being less than, so in both of these cases, we have 3.3, we have uh, 2.9. If we were to invert those and let's say it would to be 3.1 or 2.6, what the discounts that the institutions can offer, it's basically their profitability in a, in a, in a very basic sense built in, they don't have as much profitability there uh, to be able to offer to consumers as steep of a discount. Okay. Awesome. Now right. we have a couple questions for you, Trev. Yep. Okay. First of all, Melissa, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, someone on Dean's Twitch handle, or I, I think I said that right. Is it better to have a fixed or variable rate, Trevor? This is the, like, we have this debate all the bloody time. It's hilarious. It's, like, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Question that I get asked a lot. Um, is it better to have fixed versus variable? I often say to clients that, um, you know, first and foremost, there's advantages and disadvantages to having either or. Um, when it comes down to a fixed rate, a fixed, basically in a nutshell, the benefit, you have got a fixed payment. The payment is set for the entire length of the term that you're in. Uh, it will not fluctuate. Uh, one of the disadvantages to it is if you were to break the mortgage prior to maturity is uh, it's the greater of three months interest or an interest rate differential. Uh, whereas when it comes to a variable rate mortgage, uh, you know, the, it can fluctuate. And let's be clear, there's two different the, the term variable is used, let's call very loosely. There's variable rates and there's adjustable rates. So an adjustable yes. rate mortgage is as the Bank of Canada changes the prime lending rate, the more the payment on your mortgage will change. It will go up and down as it fluctuates. Whereas a variable rate mortgage, which somebody like TD offers a true variable rate, your payment is static. Your payment is, is, is fixed for the term, but the interest within the payment can fluctuate and go up and down. Uh, so they that, figure that out, Trev, can you, sorry, can you, can you just take our listeners through specifically TD? Cause that's, that's a great example that you just, uh, they, they basically, you know, juice it up and allow enough of a spread. No. So like, it'll be based on your rate, uh, unless you take, so one of the, to your point of juicing it up, what I always encourage clients to do is when we are doing a true variable rate mortgage like TD offers, let's say your contract rate requires a, a weekly payment of say $500. Uh, but if you were to take a fixed rate, which right now is 2% higher, you would have a payment of let's say $560, just literally throwing numbers out right now. Yep. Yep. So my encouragement to clients is set your payment higher to the 560 instead of the 500. <clears throat> While interest rates are low, you're going to benefit from hammering down principal. You're going to have more, more funds applied to your principal mortgage amount. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously the interest rate is low, but as the interest rate starts to climb, you've almost built a buffer in for yourself as the rate does fluctuate so that the payment uh, doesn't actually, so that excuse me, so that the interest doesn't hit the payment ceiling, meaning 500 or right. 560 as a recommendation, yep. because once it hits that threshold, you've got two choices. Either A, you need to increase your mortgage payments at that point so that the that they will now have money to going, going towards principal again uh, and not just solely interest, 
or the flip side is you start adding years onto your mortgage, right? So your, your amortization ends up being extended. Um, uh, yeah, basically, you know, I, it's, no, that's, it's, that's, that's a great, yeah, I think you, I think you nailed it. I mean, right. Like, and it's, hashtag nailed had, it, bud. yeah, Melissa had written on, uh, on YouTube yeah. about it depends kind of LOL and it very much is right. It's, it's such a Situation tricky subject specific, because right? of the advantages and disadvantages of both. Um, personally, I'm a variable rate customer technically an adjustable rate customer. My payment does change I'm the same. Uh, as the I'm uh, variable, right. As, uh, as the bank of Canada does make changes, but the big difference, like I, I mentioned at one point is we've got a, we've got a 2% gap between variable and fixed. Now, no denying the media right now, bank of Canada is on record. They are going to move prime aggressively in an effort to lower inflation. We've got to look at the realities though. And the reality is inflation is not predominantly being caused by, you know, mar like it, it's not a, it's not a Canadian issue. It's a global issue and it's per pertaining predominantly to supply chain issues. Yes. Right. So to, to use interest rate increases as the sole, uh, um, driver sole sole pressure to to put down the market uh it may have an adverse reaction or, or an opposite effect of what they're actually trying to do right recession uh right we we've talked I about I totally agree with you bud yeah right? you're you're Egglation, spot on with that one potentially uh you know obviously that a much more extreme circumstance um but nonetheless there's uh uh there's some things to keep in mind when it comes to to that so if the Bank of Canada does move, like they're talking, they're looking to get to net neutral. Net neutral being two to three percent. They're at one percent right now. Again, we talked about the premium that we pay as consumers on top. They're looking to get to two to three. So if they get to two to three percent, that means your fixed, excuse me, your variable rate mortgage is potentially going to be four point two to five point two percent less your discount. Okay. Right. So if you're in a prime minus one situation, you're looking at a rate of potentially 3.2% if it hits 4.2. If it hits 5.2%, you're looking at 4.2. So again, it, it comes down to what's your risk tolerance? What are you looking at, uh, um, you know, doing? You, you're getting a lot of, you're getting a lot of questions here, uh, Trev. I want to make sure that because For sure. this is a, okay. So if you don't mind, I don't, yeah. I hate interrupting because you're on a roll and yeah, but but this is this is a obviously a huge point. So this is record breaking talking time for Trevor too in a row. So like ton, like I think for four he's coming years, out hot I think, season five. Yeah, I think he's, he he yeah. like sent like uh, five words in four years. Um, <laughs> that is extremely incorrect. Yeah, I said much words. more than okay. five. All right, another question off of Dean Lindell's Twitch. I don't even know what that means, but I guess it's a social media thing. Uh, will it's the kind of higher... like a YouTube thing? Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Awesome. Um, will the higher interest rates help the housing prices go down? Is that the point of making the interest rate higher? Great question, Trevor. And then we should all weigh in on that one. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, what and, I was going to say. This really ties yeah. into to all of us, right? It, you know, will higher interest rates help the prices go down? I, it could, uh, to, to a small extent. Um, basically it, it's throwing fuel on the fire. 
right? We're throwing fuel on the fire with ultra low rates. Uh, so there's a lot more buyers out there in the market, right? A lot more people want to jump in because their cost of borrowing is so much lower. When it comes to uh, will rates cause house pricing to go down, we also have to look at the supply issue that we're faced with, right? And until we can get, we either need to crush the demand altogether by having higher rates where nobody is doing anything um, in order to, to lower the pricing down uh, or have more supply come in on the market to, to lower house prices. But a natural effect of, of when, when you raise the interest rates, it does cool the market. And the market cool, is cooling cool. right now. Yep. So it doesn't stop the market or anything like that. And when you cool the market, you tend to find houses that will drop in price. It's a good segue to, to my part of what happened yesterday. But yeah, I, sure. I do believe it cools the market a little bit, especially when you see it's going to continually rise the interest rates. And it's, it's, a, it's having that effect right now. So, But cooling versus dr like leveling yeah. off or dropping right. off, right? Well, right. But, but if you're looking at an extreme market, which we just came through, you're having multiple offers, <clears throat> which drives price. So we're going north on price. When you eliminate multiple offers and you're having price drops and cancellations and relistings, these are all strategies we're going to talk about in my segment here. Um, that's when the market starts going <clears throat> down in price, especially with price drops. So it does cool the market and the market is cooling right now. And uh, Bondo, I, what's your I, opinion on that? I, I, I think um, just keep in mind that these things are, are temporary too, right? Like I, I think certain regions have been undervalued uh, from a real estate perspective for, for a long time now. Like right? Niagara. I mean, Niagara's been like undervalued. Niagara and essentially anywhere within a hundred kilometers of the GTA, right? Like, so I, I don't, I don't think that although you are seeing, you're going to see a knee jerk reaction anytime, you know, these types of things are implemented. So it's going to, you know, really be four, six months out. You're going to see whether, you know, there's a, a practical impact of it. And a lot of times, you know what, especially if the market's a, a good market, um, I mean, these things aren't going to really change it all that much, in my opinion. Yeah. So yeah. when it, when it came, we, we noticed that when they, anytime that, you know, when they did measures out in BC specifically and in Ontario back in, I think 2017 uh, was, was, was the year that they, you know, foreign buyers, but, you know, and, you know, making it harder to qualify for a mortgage, which is essentially what you're doing by raising the interest rate is you're making it harder for, you know, other people to qualify. Therefore, you're decreasing the supply of buyers and therefore it's leveling, leveling off demand. But in every single scenario, Trevor hit the nail right on the head. And that is we do not have a demand problem, meaning people wanting to buy. We have a supply of housing problem that is squarely on nationally, federally, provincially, municipally, across Canada. It falls on the politicians for not doing enough to drive affordable housing in order to get people into the market. And they've kicked the can down the road. I've, I've sat in on, I don't even know how many uh, info sessions dating back to 2011, 2012, saying, hey, guys, this tsunami is coming. Uh, specifically for Niagara and no one listened and no one did anything. And now you're in a situation that you're in. Um, 
So, okay, now Melissa, uh, knowing the interest rate. Yeah, sorry. So I just, I'll finish off the one part. So from Twitch about is the point of making interest rates higher? The point of making interest rates higher is to curb inflation, right? To to cool economic spending, right? Right. So So if it costs more money for someone to borrow off their line of credit, or if they have to put more money towards their mortgage, or name something. You're going to have less disposable income. And less people are going to qualify. So it does take supply of people and supply of money out of the market. It's one of the monetary policies that the central bank uses. Yep. Um, Melissa asked a question. Yep. Uh, Knowing knowing the interest rate is going up for the foreseeable future, is it better to go for a variable or fixed rate on a new mortgage? Trev, quickly. So I would say we're... So Melissa, we're in territory right now where the the qualifying rate that we have to use is the greater of 5.25%, which is the benchmark, and the contract rate plus 2%. So presently, if you were to be getting a brand new mortgage today you and you were to go variable, you would be looking at a qualifying rate of 5.25%. Whereas if you were to be going with a fixed rate, and let's assume that lender is offering you a rate of 4.34%, you're now qualifying at 6.34%. Your purchasing power is getting hurt a little bit. Um, back to like I was saying before, where I talked about the you know the net neutral hitting 4.2 to 5.2. If you have a 100 basis point discount, that will essentially give you a rate in the range of 3.2 to 4.2%. You've got to ask yourself, do you are you looking for the stability and just having it locked in and not having to worry about any type of fluctuation and basically giving the bank lender credit union extra money up front for the stability that okay, it's never going to go over that. Um so you've got that sa- that that safety net, I guess built in uh but 4.34% versus getting a rate of you know potentially if it climbs the way they're they're uh, anticipating you could be in a 3.2 to 4.2 you're still ahead right and that's, that's right. the big thing you know i i had a call with a client the other day she she basically had already convinced herself that she's not going to lock in the bank you know she She's in a variable rate mortgage. We had a very steep discount that we were able to do on her mortgage last year, uh, 1.25%. She had contacted the bank. She found out that the rate based on the amount of time left in her term that she can lock into is 3.99%. So she ran and did the math and you know, she contacted one of her good friends uh, who's an executive at a different bank. And they said, you know what, now's the time to be locking in. And she started running the math and you know, she, she's, you know, she knows, you know, she's leaned on me for some advice. We've talked about that whole, um, you know, net neutral. We've talked about those details and she said, I'm still further ahead. If they're on the low end, if they're on the high end, you know, yeah, I'm going to lose a little bit of money, but it means I'm not paying that extra money today and taking it one step further to kind of summarize this. A fixed rate, you're locked in for your term, whereas the variable rate, if the Bank of Canada does make a mistake and moves too aggressively too quick, and which they, they realize, have in the past, they realize they, they have to pull it back. If you're in a variable, you get to ride that roller coaster down as well as up. You get both the advantage, you know, both sides of it. Yep. So 
That's why I say personally, I'm a, I'm a variable rate customer. That's why I do it. Um, because I've advantage and, and to be honest with you guys, like when they started increasing rates, 2017 through 2019 there, I questioned it. I thought to myself, geez, is now the time to lock in, right? Like, cause you have that. And I do this every single solitary day, but I had that, I, I questioned myself. I questioned my, my, the logic that I use when, when talking to clients, when, when talking through these scenarios and I, I turned it against myself and I'm like, oh, I should be locking in right now. And obviously, you know, I, I didn't end up doing it. And the benefit is (laughs) I knew they were going to cut, they, I knew the rates had to come back down because again, the only industries that were firing on all cylinders was housing at that time. Um, so I knew it couldn't sustain. I didn't foresee a pandemic where we were going to drop 150 basis. Well, that's it, right? No one did. Yeah. But you know, I got a further benefit that I didn't anticipate originally. Well, well you watch, we, the, you watch uh, the outcry coming while the interest rates go up from everybody just yeah. losing their mind because the mortgage, you know, the amount of mortgage people have are the highest it's ever been. And it's going to, I think, is going to end up coming back down because they're going to move too fast. Well, I mean, they're going to have to. There's too many mortgages at like 1.75, 1.69 that are fixed that you can't sustain high interest rates for a long period of time. You're going to tank your market in three years. During the global financial crisis, they actually did an analysis and basically, uh, you know, they, they came to the conclusion, I believe it was RBC was the article that I read back in 2017. And that was basically, we can't have rates above 5%. And they had it calculated that a, a significant portion, I'm talking like, you know, five to 10% of Canadians would lose their homes because exactly your point Bondo, like people just, you just, you just can't do that to people. Um, we have another question from which will nice, a nice segue into Collins, what Collins wants to talk about as a 27 year old renter in Toronto. Do I have any chance in ever owning a home? People, my age group laugh at the idea of home ownership. So we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll segue that to Collins, but first and foremost, I need to ask the question, uh, Collins, are you okay? Like you keep clearing your throat, bud. Like, I think I got the vid again. Did, Second did something time, get lodged? Like like the entire listenership can hear you clearing your throat. Are you good? I'm, I'm putting the mute button on. You get... <laughs> I know how to use the mute button. So oh, good. good. He's learned. All right. He's learned now. He's learned. learned. That's good. <laughs> okay, good. You're not dying on us, though. I don't know. I, I could be. Like I, We were at John Michael's last night, and there was 600 people crammed in that room, and we were shoulder to shoulder with no masks That's on. That's so. great. I could have it again. Yeah. Whatever right, it makes well, me stronger, right? Whatever. Yeah. I'm triple let's move on. Me. Well, let's answer the let's let let's answer uh, Collins. In your opinion, um, you are one of the top realtors on top well, of a home mind, builder. He's in Toronto. This guy, right? So yeah. that's it. So, but bit, uh, it, it is a little bit different. But Collins, you you've experienced uh, people coming down from Toronto and buying your homes that you build, and also taking on oh, clients oh. that have moved. So go ahead, take it. Well, it's tough for me to kind of comment on Toronto, Toronto prices. Like if people say, am I ever going to buy in Toronto at 27? First off, what do you do? What's your income? You know, do you save any money? There's a lot of variables for that. Um, I can comment in Niagara, Niagara region. I have tons of clients who are, are 25 and under who buy. And uh, within five years, they're they're making quite a bit of money and they have quite a bit of equity. 
Um, these are a lot of guys I represent that are trades guys and they know how to work on their house too. <clears throat> the problem I find, and I apologize for coughing, Curry. Um, yeah. the, the problem I find is a lot of buyers have very high expectations for their first house. And I'm not sure about the rest of you guys. My first house was bought from my parents, which helped out a little bit, or my father. Uh, I bought it about 18 years ago. So I jumped in the market, you know, right away as soon as I could. I recommend people to get in there as soon as they can. But the reality is, and I talked to a lot of my friends, they're all, how are our kids ever going to buy a house? And, and that's a reality that's coming up right there. But there are still houses. I'm, I'm going to be listing a house. Let's see. May 6th, I've got pictures going. And we're listing right around $300,000. Mind you, it's not a masterpiece house by any means. But it's a, a vehicle to get you to gain some equity in your house where you can grow. So in Toronto, if you're 27 years old, and I don't know where you're working, like say, you know, you could be a student coming out of school, you have a job at $65,000 a year, you're going to have a very hard time buying there. You know, if you have a, a partner in life who can buy with you, and then you have something else. But the reality is in the, the metropolis of Toronto, you're going to have a hard time if you if you branch out a little bit further and start there and then maybe move in. You could have more like you might see this a bit too trevor where, where people are trying to get approved early and they're younger at 27. it's tough to comment on just 27 years old because i know some very wealthy 27 year old people that, that have no problem buying it you know it really depends on how much you're making and importantly how your credit is and and what kind of house you're looking for if you want a brand new build in toronto at 27 years old it's going to be very hard to to get and so, so we have some clients right there moving to sudbury um, you know, in our area right now, the southern part of Niagara is a little bit more affordable than the northern part of Niagara. Yeah. Um, so people got to move around. But we do have a lot of people moving down from GTA to the Niagara region right now. And their commute can be an hour, hour and a half. But they also work from home a lot more now, you know. Yeah, Melissa, the GTA is balls for buying. Yep. Yes, it is, Melissa. Well, the GTA is difficult to buy in. But it's like, you know, you look at Toronto. It's the fourth largest market in North America, right? So Toronto being that, if you went to New York City, do you think you could afford to live in right in New York City? It's going to be tough to build there, too. But you can branch out from Toronto, especially now. More than ever, you can work from home now. You know, offices are, yes. have a lot of vacancies. People work from home. There's entrepreneurs and stuff like that. So it's tough to say because it depends on your income level and depends on how close you want to be to the Sky Dome in Toronto, because it's going to be pretty pricey right there, right? So if you're branching out, you go to different areas. Yeah, but even the Niagara region now is becoming more expensive to buy. But there is routinely houses being listed at under 300000 in Niagara. It's difficult to obtain because you're typically competing with flippers or investors, and they're buying the house with a line of credit. And you'll find, like me and Trevor deals with it all the time, we're trying to set people up with mortgages, Mm -hmm. And we absolutely 100% need them to get a financing clause. And in this house price range, they can't even get the, they can't even get the financing clause for the last little while. Right? So it depends on what you're looking for. The problem now, is if it's priced at 300,000, there's a good chance for a detached house. It's got some major issues. And then the first time buyer can't really tackle that. Right? So it just depends on, your appetite for risk or, or how handy you are or what kind of family members you have that can improve your house. Well, now Collins, let's... you had it. Go ahead. So we had a great, we had a great, yeah. Is it cheaper to buy a pre-build uh, Collins? Can you touch, can you explain to people the difference between pre-build or uh, just as a builder? Can you just explain to that how that works? 
Well, pre-built, there's a good example of pre-built to show you the difference of buying a pre-built. And for the last year, like I'm, I'm a builder myself and we used to pre-sell some of them. And for the last year, we found that we were pre-selling them and the material skyrocketed. So our, our profit margin eroded pretty bad. So we decided not to pre-sell any of them. And the, the problem was, and this is for me, I'm not trying to to hurt any buyers out there looking for a pre-built. Obviously I'm running a business, so I want to make sure I make money and don't lose money. But if we were, if we were pre-selling them, we were locking, for example, we had about six bungalows that were detached in Dane city of Welland sold them. And we were locking in prices anywhere from 550 to 650, which now, which now seems um, unattainable for a, a new detached build. We would pre-sell them about a year ahead of time. It took approximately a year to design the house and then build the house and everything. And by the time we passed them their keys, the houses were worth anywhere from 850 to 900. So the advantage of a pre-build is you get in early with the builder who needs to create financing or have pre-sold houses to get the financing from the bank or the credit union or the private lender. And when they do that, they typically get a lower price. They get priced at the current market value or sometimes even below that. A good example in, in Niagara, uh, right where I'm building my own current house right now, <clears throat> which is hopefully done soon, there was some pre-sales of two-story townhouses. Now, what the region's trying to do to make affordable housing, they're jamming in as many tight houses as you can get. So two stories, small yards, and they were pre-selling them. They were pre-selling them approximately $500,000 for a new build. And these are just closing now. Now, recently, some of those ones that closed have been resold after the owner moved in for $850,000, you know? So as the builder, you're looking at there and saying, wow, the market has really gone up. But as a pre-sell, if you can lock in and you can find that, you'll typically get it at quite a bit lower than the market value it will be at when you move in. So they are there. And the reason builders will have them is they need to secure firm deals in order to get financing for some cases. So if you can find a pre-built, jump on it. Sometimes you might have a delay of closing, which is covered under Ontarian. So if it is a builder who's building in Ontario, they have to have new home warranty. And you might get, especially in a condo situation or apartment style condo, where there's a lot of delays. So you might think you have a closing date of a year from now. And Bond, I'm sure you've seen it a million times or, or Trevor too, you know, arranging the financing. And it could be delayed two, three, four years sometimes, right? And really, you might be without a home, you might have to rent, you know, there's a lot of situations where it's bad, but if you can hold on for four years and you locked in the initial price, it's quite the windfall when you, when you typically close. In fact, there's a lot of buyers out there who look for these types of sales, their assignment sales, where they'll buy the pre-build very early on and before closing, they'll relist it and assign it to a new buyer. So effectively just changing the buyer's name on it. And then they basically um, obtain that, that difference in profit right there. You know, it's it's uh, it's something that there's good and bad. We can do a whole different segment on that. But pre-builds are great if you can find them. Not all builders have been doing them lately. But with the market cooling, as we know it is right now, partially because of interest rates, partially because of there's certain tactics that I also want to talk about that aren't, you know, pleasing buyers. It is lowering it. So now builders are starting to look at um, maybe I should pre-sell them. So me and my partner are looking to pre-sell some townhouses. And another thing that to, to keep in consideration a lot of builders borrow at certain construction rates, so maybe 8%. But with the market going up or, or interest rates going up, you're not getting private lending at 8% anymore. So recently I had a phone call 
where another gentleman I know, and I'm, I'm not really representing, but he does call for advice sometimes or, or, you know, trying to talk to me about certain things he wants to sell. He was borrowing at 14% now for, for, for selling private lending. And he's like, 14%? Now, I can't afford to construct this. His Terion was $30,000 a unit. He wanted 10 of them to build. So he had $300,000 there plus 14% of, of, of borrowing plus delays in construction. This builder's sitting there now and saying, I, I can't, I'm not going to make enough money to make this worthwhile all the time I got put in here. And now he's trying to sell off the whole thing. And I'm, I'm talking to certain clients that might buy it right now because they can still get a lower rate. But I do believe with the market changing, if it continues to change and there's no guarantee the market will keep cooling, it could always heat back up. But I think there's going to be more opportunities out there for, for pre-builts because of the interest rate and how it's going to affect uh, some of the, the builders. So, so, for I mean, example, me and my partner have to pre-sell a couple right now because the lender that we were using, that we were aligned with, had told us, <clears throat> and I'm not going to mention names or anything like that, but the lender we were borrowing from said that he would build our, or, or loan us the money for a six block of townhouses. Okay, so the whole shell would be paid for and one model home. That was a typical way we had it. But now this credit union is looking at it and saying the market's cool and they want to protect themselves. Banks really like to protect themselves and really have zero risk almost. And now they've told us instead of doing what we told you we'd be doing for six months, and I'm a little bit annoyed about this, we now need two pre-sales. So we are forced by our lender to pre-sell two of these units, which from our mind, we don't mind we're considered doing it because we we're looking at the market. But if we pre-sell two of them, then we get the full financing that we were kind of promised before. But because we never signed any papers, the handshake deal, which never do in business, as Bond can attest to, there's no handshakes in business. If stuff changes and it's going to cost money for it, sorry, things have changed, you know, especially the pandemic. There's nothing that's locked in anymore. So now we have to potentially pre-sell two of them, maybe one, because I'm talking to another, another lender, too, who said one of them's good all we need. But we have to go through all these hoops and barriers to get this done. But now I'm going to be offering two pre-sales on townhouses in one of the places that we're building right now. And we'll keep the other four and sell them later on. But the problem is where we had it before, we were pre-selling at, let's say, 575 on a house. When we passed the McKees, it was 850 And that's fine. Sometimes the market goes up great. But our profit margin was pretty much locked in at about 15% at that time. And by the time we gave them the keys, their profit margin soared. And our profit margin went closer to 10% because the materials increased so much. So it was a difficult thing from us. And you're kind of always learning. And, and people have to understand none of us professionals understood what would happen during a, a pandemic nobody thought the prices would shoot up like they have and now that we're kind of coming out of it if we ever come out of it what's going to be the reaction to this is the market going to drop right back to pre-pandemic levels who knows it's the supply chain right now that's killing everything no because materials are through the roof and everything so it's hurting everybody so just just watch just... Watch, watch out for your escalation clause jeff has yep. them in his contracts but chooses Sometimes maybe not to implement them depending on the circumstances, but so his margins may have been able to be a little bit higher should he have wanted to rely on his escalation. Well, and that's the problem. As the builder, we could have enforced it a lot harder than we did, but we're always looking at Some public will. perception, right? And, and and I think that's almost important to have a, a good public persona out there. So if you're a builder and you said, sorry, guys, it went up 50 grand, you got to pay 50 grand. You know, we still made it profitable, but we made a conscious decision not to whack people with this price increase that we got hit with and we absorbed and we were able to do that. 
but we're conscious enough to not kill our public persona for our build company, which we're trying to grow. And we didn't want to just chop it off right at the legs, right when we started to, to really catch our, our, our Well, momentum. if we go, and if we want to go back to the initial question, which is, is it cheaper to buy a pre-build and do I have a chance? But I mean, Trevor and I have had this conversation as well with, with regards to, I think it's best to just get into the market because, and Trevor can attest to this, and managing your expectations on what you want your first home to be. Because I think a lot of people, um, I think a lot of people basically, you know, would say, and Trevor, if you want to, you know, chime in here, um, sure. they, they want the house, they want the white picket fence. They want, you know, you know, 2000 quartz countertops, the tray ceiling, yeah, you know, the like ceiling at, fireplace, you know, at they the want end an of the elevator. Day, just, that doesn't happen just buy, just buy something and, and, and get into the market because here's the problem as a financial advisor, as a certified financial planner, I have to, once you tell me that you, this money that you're giving me, um, is for a, a home, a future home. And you give me your time horizon of, you know, two to three, two to three years, let's say, which is typical, which is your aspirational automatically it because of a, a of of the know your product and know your client and KYC KYPs for people that are listening out there that know, understand the market, um, you e immediately remove your fund options or your stock options that you can invest in because the risk profile is too high for to meet your time horizon and your objective. So you immediately drop down, which is fine. And in a normal environment, when you know, you're just normally saving. That's not, it's, it's okay. But what Jeff is saying as well is that when properties are growing at 13, 18% in some areas, 25% in some areas, because of bidding wars, your balanced portfolio, uh, which is what you'd probably qualify for is maybe growing at six or 8%. So your here's your down payment that you're trying to save and you're compounding at six to 8%, but the house that you probably want to qualify for. So let's say it's $400,000 in today's dollars. It, it's, it's compounding at 15, 20, 25%, depending on the area. And your down payment is not catching up at a 5% rate is not catching up to the purchase price. Uh, Trev, if you want to chime in, cause you've had a bunch of clients that are like this. Yeah. And, and let's be honest with, uh, those huge gains aren't th that that's, what's cooling right now. We're not seeing those huge gains at the moment because um, we've had a price adjustment already. Be yeah. Because we've had a price adjustment. So we're not seeing those huge gains. Um, you know, kind of tying into all of this, you know, Jeff and I do a lot with clients on, uh, it's called purchase plus improvements. It's a program that a lot of, uh, a lot of brokers, lenders don't want to talk about, um, you know, it's more work involved in it. Uh, um, you know, a lot of people don't really have any aspiration of, of getting involved in, in renovating, but a purchase plus improvement mortgage, basically, you know, to some comments that were previously made in the group here of saying that, you know, setting expectations of what you're looking for in a house. And the benefit of a purchase plus improvement is you buy a home that has good bones. It's good structurally, but it's dated, right? So maybe, you know, it's, it's got uh, powder blue carpet. Maybe it's got, um, 
you know, old linoleum countertops uh, or, or excuse me, um, uh, laminate countertops or linoleum floors. And a purchase plus improvement mortgage will allow you to build those costs of the of the renovations into the mortgage. And why that's so important is anybody that's been out there that's looking for that move in ready home has seen how highly competitive that market is. Whereas when you walk into the house that needs a little bit of TLC, that a lot of people just instantly turn around and say, nope, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm walking away from this one rather than looking past the cosmetics seeing the bones and seeing the potential of the house. And that's a great opportunity for somebody that is feeling down and out in the market. Just get yourself in, get yourself into one of those houses that, you know, it will be marketable. That's the key thing here, right? And that's something that Jeff and I always try and do with clients is he tries to find them a house that is going to be marketable further once the renovations are done. Now, whether or not you renovate it and you move it, you know, Jeff and I have, uh, you know, a couple of clients where they've done just that, where they're in the trades, they know their stuff. So they buy a house super cheap. They, you know, we just put 40 grand into the house, get it renovated. A year later, uh, don't have capital on it. It's been the primary residence. So we've got a capital gains exemption here. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry uh, about that. Curry, but yeah, capital gains exemption, and then gives them the opportunity to go and buy the next house, right? And kind of just keep doing that. Um, you know, it might take you five homes, but you know, to better five yeah, homes like, than no home at all. I there's guess lots of strategies, and me and Trevor have done this for a while. So excuse me for interrupting you there for a second. Yeah, go but for I, it. I'm going to share the screen right here. Me and Trevor, this was pre-pandemic. We did a lot of this head start home buying, and. It, Honestly, I got distracted with the building and all that. And, you know, you you, uh, you get busy. You sure um, did. But this was one of our favorite things that me and Trevor kind of cultivated together. And we actually came up with a, um, a little video here. So I'm sharing my screen right here. It's a shameless plug for my own website, but bettercallcollins.com. And we actually tried to brand it with something we came up with ourselves, Head Start Home Buying. So it's kind of like a good head start on your home buying. But if you go to this website, we actually came up with a whiteboard chalk video right here. Yeah, you're going to play it? I'm not going to play it? Well, how, go for it. Play it. Go it's for it. I'm sure people would be interested. But in you're not sharing it. your screen right now. Oh, no? No. No. So go share oh, screen, no. and then you've got either entire screen or go window. Click on window. Find what you're looking for. So Sorry, I go to entire screen, right? I'm on entire some screen. Technical difficulties. No, share screen at the in the middle and the bottom. <laughs> Jeff. You see the mic and then the video? Choose what you want to share. There we go. There you go. Entire screen, right? Okay, no, because the entire right. screen, we're going to see this. So, yeah, so if the, I switch to this, you see that now, right? Yeah, just go to win. There we go. Yeah, there, you go. there you go. Perfect. Get renovations done on your mortgage, not out of your pocket. Allow Which one's Jeff? Which one's Trev? Like <laughs> Trevor right there. Done. Yeah, humping the house. <laughs> yeah, he's a house humper. Step to success. One, find a house you like that needs work done. I've sold that house. Get nice. professional estimates for renovations. Three, get approved by my mortgage broker. Can you turn it up there, uh, Jeff? Four, take possession of house. Nope. And start <laughs> Five, complete all estimated work and provide proof of completion. 
Six, enjoy your new improved home with an increase in equity. Allows you to buy your own house and make it perfect for you and not competing with people on the new improved, more desirable products. Perfect example. Find a house listed at $410,000 that needs several updates. Needs updated kitchen, bathroom, windows, and AC and furnace. And, and we've done this. House down to four hundred thousand dollars, and allow for forty thousand dollars. Yeah, the problem is flippers, though. A lot of times, jump on these, right? Oh yeah, yeah. sure they do. Yep. Fifteen thousand dollars. AC furnace, eight thousand dollars. Windows, ten thousand dollars. Bathroom, seven thousand dollars. Complete work in your new mortgage is based on a four hundred and forty thousand dollar house, but at the same interest rate you were approved on. After the work is complete, if done properly, look how happy they are. The value up to four hundred and sixty-five. Absolutely, wife's happy. Now you've actually made twenty-five thousand dollars in equity in only one hundred and twenty days. Or Keep less. in mind the estimates on the improvements that were pre-pandemic, eh? <laughs> no, you know what? I bet you I could still get those in certain houses. Even better, though, is yeah. you, you now want, have just press pause. Yeah, yeah, stop your oh, screen oh. sharing at the bottom, stop, buddy. Stop the screen. Want more yeah. details on this great program with proven results. There we go. Or to even talk with people. Do I got to say, I'm a rookie to this stuff. Anyways, if you want to see more about that, and now that I look at it, Trevor, I should have totally had your name there for my mortgage guy. I didn't have it in there at all. You didn't like me that much then. You didn't like me as much then as you do now. That's why. Well, there's other lenders that were taking me out to lunch more often, you know? So I was just joking. But yeah, if they want to do that, better call Collins. And me and Trevor came up with that. We called it Head Start Home Buying. Feel free to reach out to us about it. But that example right there is still doable with those renovation prices. So when you joked about that bond, I've still done kitchens recently. We did it with one of our clients last year for a brand new kitchen at less than $15,000 right there. Mind you. This is not state-of-the-art $4 million house kitchen, right? But no. it's way better than the one you wanted to buy. And I'm guiding people with my tradespeople to increase the value of it, right? So this is a common thing out there, <clears throat> which That's now that the market's cooling somewhat, will be available out there. But we have clients that, that Trevor's talking about, trades guys, that do this on a regular basis. We call it the, I won't say the name, but the SK deal. Maybe we should get SK on here one day. He just had a baby. <laughs> but he could talk about that stuff right there. And he'll be doing his third house potentially coming up. He's got the itch again. Yep. By the time he's done his third house, this gentleman, I think, will be 26 by then. He should have clear of, of a half a million dollars in the bank equity. But if he sold it all, he could put it in the bank, too. That is tax exempt. And invest it. And invest it. And invest it. And it's tax exempt. His next idea would be to, to get a lot and build a house from scratch, which is a whole different program. It's something that... I'm doing myself as a builder, but the amount of money I'm making building my own house, being a builder is, is, is I don't even want to say it to be honest, but it's capital gains exempt. I'm going to live there two, three years and potentially do it again. But to be honest, it is so stressful building your own house, yeah. especially the size of the house I'm doing. It's almost a full-time job, but I'm trying to treat it as a full-time job because of the money I will make in income from it using that capital gains exemption which I'm going to, you know, perfectly live there for two, three years is more than I'd make, you know, after taxes for, for a year and all that. It's crazy the amount of money you can make in it. So there's a lot of strategies that we could really talk about if people really wanted to dig into it because there's, there's money and, and some people don't want to say it, but you know, there's a lot of money to be made out there in real estate. It's, it's completely insane, but 
there's a caveat to that. There's a hell of a lot of stress that goes along with that too. Now, Jeff, you were saying just if we, but before you jump to Josh, um, like five minutes, if you want to touch on the uh, piece about what happened last night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good, you know what? I won't go long on that one because uh, I've taken up a lot of time before. Anyways, I went to a super sure. side night last night and I had a client that I ended up bringing with me last night and he wanted to buy a property. So this is common practice right now while the market's changing. Okay. I don't know which way the market's going to go, but right now there is definitely a change. What going to Supasada night before you buy a house? That's what, that's how the market. Well, I, I wouldn't recommend it. There, there's a funny joke as a realtor that if, if you ever want to get busy, book a vacation or have some yes, kind of a true. night out because the second you want to go out somewhere, it's funny because this was planned. My painter brought me great guy. Um, but he planned for this and my partner was supposed to come with me for building. He got COVID and he was, he was the, I guess, diagnosed with COVID yesterday, so he couldn't go anywhere. So I took one of my clients instead. And this was planned two months in advance for six o'clock at John Michaels in uh, Thorold yesterday. And sure enough, five o'clock deadline, which I don't understand for realtor putting a deadline at five o'clock to, to, to register offers five o'clock. But the problem in the market right now, when you're representing a client and someone lists a house and says no offers until. This is the thing that's really pissing off the public right now is no offers till. Because as soon as you see that, most buyers are assuming a bidding war. People are sick and tired of bidding wars, okay? The problem is there's tactics out there still by agents. And, and I've used this tactic before in the past. It's really frowned upon right now in our industry where you underprice the house. Okay, sorry I'm shaking around a lot. I'll, I'll have a new office soon enough. But you underprice the house. And there's two things that happen when you underprice the house. You can eliminate almost all conditions. Okay, so there could be issues with the house, which if it's a latent defect, and Josh can attest to that, if it's a latent defect in a house, you must disclose that to the potential buyer, the realtor, and all that. You can't hide it. Okay, so if you have a problem with the structure that you know about, you can't put drywall over it and pretend it's not there. You know, there's litigation that can involve with that. But if you underprice the house, no one can get conditions on the house. Okay, so no financing, no house inspection, no lawyer approval. Because if they do put the conditions on, they can't get the house. Now, this has happened for the last two years. People are pissed about it. They don't even, they want to shun the house when they see it like that. Okay, so to, to round it all up here, last night there was a house that my client wanted to buy. Million dollars listed on the water and had a decent chunk of land. Wanted to buy it. Now, he looked at it on the weekend, and yesterday at 5 o'clock was when you had to register the offers, okay? So if you wanted to, to do an offer, you had to send in what's called an 801, just acknowledging that you are registering an offer coming in. The problem is, if there's 10 offers coming in, you don't want to compete. You're just going to walk away, right? If there's maybe one offer, no offers, sure, let's play ball. So last night at 5 o'clock, I check in. Are there any offers? So she says, one offer. So I phone my client, what do you want to do? And he says, I'd like to buy it, but I need to sell a property condition. Because if he can sell his house, he can get it. He still, you know, got rid of the inspection. He's a He was a house inspector. He's a builder right now. Got rid of the house inspection. Didn't want financing, which I always recommend doing, but he had family to back it up. So he had no issues there. So I still don't like it, but whatever, that's, that's uh, you know, part of the, the market. And so he said, look, I need sale of property. My house gets sold. The, the owners wanted 90-day close, which we gave them. 
because as long as my house gets sold, I'm great. But it's still an escape clause. So sellers don't want that because if they accept the sale of property condition, that house might not sell, their house might not be sold. So anyways, we decide to put an offer, sale of property condition. We put it at full price, a million dollars. The other offer, we don't know. It's blind bidding. We talked about that last time. So we don't know if they have a condition. We don't know if it's a sale of property. We don't know if it's financing. We don't know if their offer is far below the list price. And that's what it is. So we're literally driving to John Michael's last name. I started doing the offer up at 530. I got it done real quick, a half hour, which is pretty quick, adding schedules B, C, and D, reading all the schedules, getting it done, using previous templates so I could get it done. It's not too hard when you have an offer you got to do with only one condition on it, but you still want to put protections on there for latent defects and disclosure issues, which I add to all my deals. But we put it in. I go pick them up. We're driving down there. And sure enough, we get the feel out phone call. Okay, a feel out phone call in real estate is, okay. let's give the other agent a call and see if they'll move it all. Okay, so my buyer's in the car with them. I, I tell the agent as soon as they call, we're driving on speakerphone. I said, okay, my buyer's in the car. So anything you're saying to me, he's going to hear too. No problem. Okay. And they feel us out and say, well, the other offers here too. Would you guys like to improve? Now, reading the tea leaves here, there's only two offers on this house. And I'm reading, okay, well, they don't like the other offer too. We're at full price. Clearly, they are expecting a bidding war. They have not got it now. They've got two offers. The other offer might be less than us, slightly above us, probably has conditions. And they're trying to get one of us to raise the price here. Now, they do what they want to do to get as much money for that. Raise the price said, or no. drop a condition, right? Well, they said, can you get rid of the sale of property? I said, absolutely not. My, my client can't buy unless he has the sale of property. Do you have a better offer? Well, the other offers, okay, well, then take the other offer if you don't like our offer. Okay, you know, like you have to stick to your guns sometimes. And then she says, okay, well, we just want to make sure because there's something else, you know, you don't want to lose the property or whatever, you know, like if we don't get it. There's another house out there. You know, I, I don't get caught up on that stuff. There's always another house, you know, so you don't get worried about that stuff. And that's what some people got caught up. They get emotional. They want to win it, blah, 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 blah. Two offers. They're calling us. So really, they don't like their offers. That's what I'm reading on that. We sit there. We both think the same thing. No, nope, we'll stick with our offer. Let us know. Okay, so then we go back to that. We don't hear from her an hour, and then I get an email. Not going to say the agents, not going to say the buyer, not going to say the house and all that. And I tell my clients sitting there while we're eating cured meat, sweating <laughs> in a stuffy place, you know, probably getting COVID. Um, but I tell them, I go, I guarantee you they wanted more. They're not getting it. And they're going to come back at like $1.2 million, you know? And so they don't, they, they call us up, they email me, say, thank you for your offer. We did not accept either offer. We will be canceling the listing today and relisting at $1.2 million tomorrow. What was okay. the initial list? What was the initial one list? Million. One million. Nine, nine, nine. So they, so they increased it by 20%. Yeah. So, so this is what happened. The Disgusting. agent potentially took the listing and said, let's underlist it. We'll get rid of all conditions. It's on the water. Um, there could be issues. Who knows about it? There could be floods. It's on a floodplain, all kinds of stuff like that. Let's underprice it, which they probably didn't do a CMA because really if it was underpriced by $200,000, you might have gotten more than one offer, but right now, as soon as buyers see that no offers until, they don't want to deal with it. Let's wait and see. If it's still there in a bit, whatever. So they don't get the 1.2 that the agent probably promised them or what the buyer wanted. They take it down and they relist at 1.2.
You know, and, and this happens regularly right now, and it's pissing people off. I got – oh, Jeff, how, how about this one? So I'll give you this, and just give me your thoughts on this one. So we uh, – I it was last summer, and it, it's in North St. Catharines. And, and obviously, Niagara has gone through a massive boom in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And the listing came up, beautiful bungalow, North St. Catharines, $700,000. And a bunch of us saw it. Now I'm not looking to move, so I'm fine. So but, you thought so, it was underpriced when it listed though, right? Well, we were just like, so the, my friend actually called and just called the agent and just said, Hey, like uh, we're interested in having, you know, booking a viewing. The, um, the listing agent was uh, from Toronto. The client had this relationship with this listing agent from Toronto. Why? Don't know. And when they called, it was listed for like around 700,000, which if you knew bungalows in Niagara for about 1,500, 1,600 square feet, that is drastically cheap. That's a big bungalow too. Right. And that was cheap because it's an old, it's an older, like it was beautifully made up, but it was an, it's an older home. Like that's Mm -hmm. why the lot sizes. Right. And so my buddy calls up and he goes, uh, Hey, I'm looking at listing. Cause like 700,000, that, that's great. I'd like to look through and literally out of the realtor's mouth was, well, we don't want 700,000. He goes, I want 1.2 million. Yeah. And my buddy goes, why'd you list it at 700,000? Mm-hmm. Because you're just ticking people off is all you're, you're, you're doing. You're ticking off all the realtors who put, say you have to put in 35 offers on that house. That's 34 disappointed buyers, you know, or pairs of buyers. That's 34 annoyed agents who had to put it in there. It's yep. it's just terrible in the whole industry because it gives like it a bad taste. hundred thousand dollars off, like that didn't even make any now, sense. Did it? Did it sell for that much, or what happened? No, I don't. I think it ended up coming down. Very, very, very similar to your. Um, it ended up selling, but yeah. it, it exactly what you just described is exactly what happened. They got a whack of people that didn't want to go over a million because it's a $700,000 home list mm-hmm. and they didn't get what they wanted. And it ended up being taken down. And I think a month later being put up and I think they had one or two, I don't think they got the full 1.2, but it doesn't matter. Well, realistically, um, it was a, it was a strategy that was implemented very, very infrequently, right? It's a, a strategy that's always been around, right? And oh, it's a poor strategy, right? I think of NHL and all that, and they have the salary cap, and they're circumventing the cap all the time. This is circumventing, you know, goodwill in real estate, really, right? Correct. You're lying, but you've seen it. I've seen it before where someone lists a, a property at a dollar. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, a dollar, like whatever. What are you gonna do? But then you call them and say, okay, well, what are you looking for? And they're like, well, you give us your best and all that, you know. But we're yep. expecting three million dollars for this land. What's the point? As a realtor, like one of our best competition, right? Well, it's market value. You should know market value. So what what buyers are saying right now is, why aren't they just listing what they want? And really, you shouldn't be listing what you want the house for. You should be listing what the house is worth. And you find out the worth with comparative market analysis. Me and Trevor talk about this all the time. When you're listing a house as an agent, my process usually is, Go meet them. Let's have a coffee. Let's talk about what you want to do. You kind of, you feel them out and see, you know, if they're realistic or not. Okay. And they also, well, what's my house worth? And I'll say, now I know what your house looks like, what it smells like. It sounds funny, but smells a big taste. You go to house, it's, it's coated in cigarette smoke. Yep. You know, yep. it's going to affect the price. Potentially I walk five, into 10, houses 10. and walk right back out. 
cat urine, hockey smell, you know, stuff like that. It's got to smell good, right? But you can't know that by looking at previous listings. you got to go in there and find out, is the furnace falling apart? Is the shingles gone? Is the windows dead? Is your bathroom terrible, right? Once you go to meet them, then as a realtor, we're supposed to go home and look up past sales, right? So if it's sold before and it's similar. So for example, you said a 1500 square foot bungalow in North St. Catharines, Brandon. So if I went to look at someone's house who wanted to sell that, I would go there, go home, look at certain bungalows close to that size in that area. So if it's a double car garage, it's a, it's a bungalow, it's a 1500 square foot house. You know, for me, I put it on a scale of one to 10 of what, what the, the quality of the house is when I go there. One is a complete gut job and 10 is a brand new build, right? So everything's brand new with modern kind of decor. A seven is a very typical resale house, right? Because you might have a brand new kitchen, but you need a bathroom that's redone, stuff like that, right? So that might be like a seven, right? So then you find comparable prices like that. And that's how you typically list a price. So as a realtor, what I do, I go back to my client. Here's the comparables. Do you agree these would be similar to yours? The so that's your best is, guess, right? Yeah. Well, because it, market you value be is... And all that, and you have that too. But if you're the owner of the house, you typically overvalue your house because you did all the work. You put in the you know blood, sweat, and tears. The agent's taking the emotion out of the house, saying, here's your comparable. So one of the things I always say to people, if you have a bungalow and it's on the busiest street in St. Catharines, say you're on Linwell or, or, or Geneva Street like that, and then you have the exact same bungalow, exactly to a T, except it's in a cul-de-sac, which one would be worth more? I'd say the cul-de-sac. 100%. Why? Because mom doesn't want her kids, you know, wandering out in the, the middle of the street, young kid. And, you know, I don't even want to say that, knock on wood. But a cul-de-sac, they can play hockey, hide and seek, blah, blah, blah. So there's more value there, right? There. If you had two houses the exact same, one had a brand new kitchen, one had a 1970s kitchen. Which one's worth more? Brand new kitchen. Exactly. So you go through all these things, and those are adjustments made on the property right there, right? So when you see that, you'll see a value. The problem with most... And I, I don't want to dissuade my industry because 90% of the agents are working as hard as they can. You can't have a couple bad apples ruin the whole bunch, right? And I love my industry. And I, I think 90% of the agents are working as hard as they can and, and they're trying their best for it, right? The problem is when people are buying a house, and me and Trevor talk about this all the time, they're not doing a CMA on the purchase. So they're not saying, is it worth this right here? What they see is there's, there's yeah, 70s kitchens are great, but... Um, they see there's 20 offers. Okay, what do I got to do to win this? Well, 20 offers, you know, sometimes I'll tell people 20 offers, about 10 grand an offer, you you know, ballparking right there. That's what the winning agent is probably going to go. Do I need to be the winning agent there? No. I need to make sure my client gets a house that's worth what they're paying for. You know, so there's an, another one that I use as an example all the time. I'm not going to say the agents. I'm not going to say the house, uh, but I'll, I'll say the numbers. A house listed in a various city. I don't even want to say which city either because I don't want people looking for it. Listed at 8.30. I thought decent price, decent market value, right? Side split, single car garage, 8.30. Okay, that's pretty much what the market's at right now. Six offers come on it. And I talk about this all the time with Trevor. I mean, he knows exactly what it is. The house mm -hmm. goes to a million forty. A million forty. Listing agent did their job. Great. They listed a market value, right? Six offers came in. And this is why the blind bidding war wants to get out of it. The top offer was a million forty. As the seller, of course, you're taking the most amount of money, without a doubt. As the buying agent, did you do a CMA? Did you see what other 1,200 square foot side splits with a single car garage that are done up nicely went for? Did any of them come close to hitting a million dollars? Did any of them hit nine hundred thousand dollars? I don't know. I didn't do a CMA. It wasn't my one buying it, you know, because I would show that right there. 
But now effectively, that's a new appraised value out there that's on the MLS that shows a million forty for it, right? And it's crazy because this underlisting, I think, is just such a, a, a black mark on the industry. If you want it, where's your CMA? It should You should have your CMA right in your listing almost if you wanted to. But if agents are known to do this underlisting, it, it's, 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 you know, like circumventing the, the, the spirit of what you want to do as an agent is trying to find market value for clients and best interest. You. And how do you do that if it's underlisted? So when someone lists a house at a million dollars, they don't get what they want on offer day. Guess what? It's probably not worth that. Or it's negotiable because people wait till offer day and they don't want to do it. If it's around a week after, great. But then you cancel it and list it at 1.2. What are buyers thinking now? They hate it. And it, it just it chaps my ass out there about that. <laughs> because if 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 that's if you got full price on your listing, why wouldn't you be taken? Nobody wants and they to don't have to ass. take it. They don't have to take it. <laughs> but that's a strategy implemented out there that people are just sick and tired of. Here's what I diff uh, have difficulty with, Jeff. To me, I've always viewed fair market value as you can do your comparables, you can do whatever it is that you want to try and put yourself in the best position to judge what the market is. But truly, the market, fair market value is what one person's prepared to pay and what one person's prepared to accept, right? So that's very difficult to kind of. But but I, but I how are they guided that. by that? Like, have yeah, they ever yeah, said, yeah. "We'll, no, we'll no, pay a million forty for this"? But can I yeah. find another house that's better? Yeah, out there yeah. for less money. Have, have you even done that, or did you get caught up in the emotion of saying, "I need to win this listing because I wanted that bad"? The yeah. problem in Niagara is there's so many people from out of Niagara that are, are selling their houses at much higher price that they're coming down here with fool's gold. Yeah, it's money that's not even considered money because. They got so much money for the house, they couldn't believe it. So they don't care if they just pass it on to the next seller and they want to do that. But it inflates all prices in the region and it makes it so the buyers can't afford it anymore. Honestly, I prefer to go back to pre-pandemic pricing. When we were selling our bungalows that we were building in Dane City for $650,000. It was easy to control costs and all that. It made sense. It was great. It just inflated like, like crazy. And it's great because if you're an owner, like all of us are house owners here, we make quite a bit of money. But I do feel bad for the people out there. And it just there was no rhyme or reason for the price increases because it was it was pushed and stimulated by people who got paid huge money in GTA and came down here and just won it no matter what. They could be well, well you feel bad for the 27-year-old who's really concerned that they'll never own a house, right? Uh, more well, not even the 27-year-old, the, the two 40-year-old couple that have been renting for the last 15 years right. and, and you know. Right. Finally, have no, a chance. I just meant as an example, you feel bad for anybody that can't kind of get in. Like, like 27 years old, I find is kind of where people start thinking to buy houses. You know, to be honest, if you could be 19, buy a house because that time you're 27, the equity you've made in it is going to make you pretty wealthy, right? If you want to get wealthy, in my estimation, and I know Brandon, you'll have different things for investing and all that. If you own a, a house, that's the you know the safest way to get wealthy over 10 years, right? If you own a house for 10 years. There's no way it's the same price it was when you bought it because equity is going to go up, right? If you're never in a position where you're forced to sell real estate, it'll go. It might go through some cycles, right? Well, but, you're uh, a lawyer. You know you can get forced to sell real estate. Separations yeah. happen all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. But I mean, but if you're, that's a big part of the business. But if you're buying real estate as an investment and you you're never you never say individually in a position. Where well, the saying in real estate is don't wait to buy, to buy and wait, right? So yeah, if you buy the house it. and you sit on it, you make money. But if you wait to buy, you know, people you who are thinking about doing it pre-pandemic now, they're like, I can't afford it now. Yeah. You know, the same we don't think about it, you do it. Now, on that note, I mean, that's a great segue in the sense of 
people are now looking to sell. So Bondo, uh, now Melissa, we, we yeah, saw you your, answer uh, that first. Yeah. Well, uh, or can we, why don't we talk? No, let's make that another segment. Let's make that the next following segment that Collins can talk about. The um, renovations, uh, the renovations segment. I think that's a great I'll, I'll topic. I'll make it real quick. Kitchens and bathrooms. Boom. <laughs> that's yeah, that's what we'll, we'll go and into floors. more detail. Like floors in there too. Floors. We'll go into more detail. Uh, yeah, and we, we might even that. bring on a flooring specialist in order for that to happen. On on how we can Ooh, do that. Carlo, eh? And we bring in bring in Carlo DeSantis. Carlo, the what a smooth, uh, spoken individual though. Eh? This very like, he looks like um, Vin Diesel. He's our <laughs> he's our Vin Diesel friend. Bald, deep voice. Like, oh, he's got the voice of a uh, oh, uh, broadcast. He's got a voice for radio. For sure. <laughs> oh, he's definitely got a voice for radio. Voice transplant. Our, li oh, our listeners are going to love hearing from Carlo Whoa. DeSantis. Anyways, so you know, you see. But let's <laughs> let's move to Bondo. Bondo's topic on, um, yeah, okay, selling a home. So anyone that has a rental property that has a renter in it, yep. let's walk everybody through the process that you should go through because all three of us, all four of us on here at one point had rental properties with tenants in them. Bondo go. Listen, a real estate transaction is, is complicated at the best of times. Um, that's why you hire your professionals, your agents, your lawyers, your mortgage specialists, etc. You want the professional insight. You do, you do. You definitely want the professional insight. As things get more complicated, as in the case with a rental property, it's a more complicated transaction. I don't care which way you splice it. If it's a rental property and there is a renter in that property when you're selling it, make sure, or when you're buying it, make sure that your agent and or lawyer has reviewed the agreement of purchase and sale. And in particular, the clause that deals with what's going on with the tenant. We deal with two things, vacant possession or non-vacant possession, right? Those are the two things that we essentially deal with. So when you're buying this house at the end of the date, your closing date's June 30th, your intention as a buyer and as a seller are to either sell it or buy it with a tenant in there or to sell it and buy it vacant. So to assume the tenant, basically. Correct, right? So if you're dealing with a rental property, you have to make sure and crystal clear that the language within the agreement specifically outlines the true intention of the parties to deal with those tenants. And it's very loosey-goosey language a lot of times, and you really could get tripped up and screwed on it. If you're in a position where a lot of the clauses read, well, if we can't get our tenant out, then you agree to extend the, the closing by 30 days. And if it doesn't do it, we can't get them out within 30 days, then we have the ability to extend this offer unilaterally or it's all open-ended language, right? So... I mean, sometimes you're in a situation where, listen, I'm buying it as a rental property. I'm selling it as a rental property. It's not as bad because there's more flexibility in time. But if somebody's selling it as a rental property and the purchaser is buying it to live in it, that's when you really get tripped up, right? So make sure your clause 
that deals with renters specifically uh, addresses what your true intentions are uh, because you can very certain uh, make certain that uh, there's a likelihood that you're going to be dealing with an issue if you're trying to get that tenant out um, and it's time specific on your closing. You should put a little caveat here too, Josh, that if, if people say that they're going to take over the house for immediate family, yep, right? And that's part of the clause, how to get them you know, evicted yep. or, or to move out. And if they don't, you know, so yes. this is yep. something that, that's quite, you know, quite common out there. They'll say they're taking over for immediate family. Yep. They take the house, they fix it up a bit, and they put it right back up for rent three months later. What happens then? Well, in those circumstances, I, I'm not entirely proficient or up to speed on the, the Residential Tenancies Act, but my former understanding, which may still hold true, is that when you're doing renovations, I mean, it's fraud, first of all, right? Because right. You, bought, you bought on the basis that you were uh, going to own or occupy or immediate family occupy the property, and that gives you grounds to evict a, a, yeah. a tenant, right? Um so if you didn't, in fact, do that, then the tenant may be able to reinforce their rights against you uh, as a renter. Um, Trevor's got something he's going to say. I can see it in his yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah, no, he's hot. He's going to say something. Half he's going to say something. Open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I boy. I don't want to interrupt anybody, but that is, yeah. it, that's exactly it. The way the rule is set up now is if you ask for vacant possession for you or an immediate family member to occupy the security... And you choose not to do that. It's for a period of, of no less than 12 months. The tenant, the former tenant would have to actually go to the landlord tenant board with evidence and then essentially bring you to the tribunal and, you know, try and, you know, are they going to get something out of you? Not likely. Um, but the, the tribunal can fine you up to 25 K. Yeah, they can issue now I, too, right? In certain, that's certain for first offense. Right. Now, Bondo, I got an example for you, and I want you to comment on it. Yeah. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, I'm, we all know him. I'm not going to say his name on air. I just don't because it it's sure. a sensitive subject. Um, his neighbor. Are you sure you don't want to say his name on air? I'm, 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 I'm just funny. Positive. You keep saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I'm not going to mention any names. But, you not going to mention any names. <laughs> but uh, for, a mutual friend of all of ours, um, and uh, he he had a very a, no, an elderly neighbor that he was very close to. And, uh, that, that elderly neighbor, um, was renting, um, and along came a listing and then basically it just wasn't selling. And the, the neighbor was worried about like, who's the buyer and what's rent going to be jacked up to, et cetera, et cetera. And our friend basically said, listen, you have an issue. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Don't worry about it. Um, because I want, I want you to stay and I'll keep your rent the same. Yada, yada, yada. He worked out the numbers and probably going to take a little bit of a loss, but he, he's very close with this particular neighbor. And, um, lo and behold, or by the weekend, of course, once, once, uh, our friend said that he'd buy it, um, they found a buyer and, uh, the land, the <laughs> owner said, all right, fine. We found a buyer. Great. And the next thing you know, like two weeks later, eviction notice, bam. And, um, yeah. So want to comment on that Bondo when the, and the, previous owner the original owner was just beside themselves on because that was a condition of sale yet the minute that the transaction went through and it closed 
eviction notice. So can you just uh, touch on that? What What is the recourse of the tenant? Do they have to abide by that? Like, what is it? No, they don't. I nope. see. They can stay. Trev. They can stay. They can they can file their appeal with the tribunal. Uh, well, essentially, so it depends the, the, on what the purpose of the eviction notice was, right? Is it is it an eviction notice to renovate the property? Yes. Okay. That's so what they went. That's what they went notice, under. If it's an eviction notice to renovate the property, I, they're permitted to give a notice of 120 days, and that's exactly to, correct. They're allowed to affect. Uh, significant renovations to the property and they're allowed to evict the individual. But now, there's a couple, there's a couple pieces to that though, Bond. Yeah, I know. There are, now, now yeah. should that renter wish to re-rent that property at the same, and don't quote me on the same rent, but I believe it's the same rent after the renovations are completed, they have that right. It has to be offered to them first. They have to have the property offered back to them yep. to re-rent it. Yep. Otherwise, at a, but at a higher price, though. I believe they can go for a. I believe they can go for a higher price, uh, right. within reason. Um, I'd have to double check that uh, because there has been the rules too, right? Well, since I've been a landlord, there's been rules around this that have changed right. um, that it has to be offered back to. And if you, as the tenant, don't choose to go back the the landlord has to pay you two months rent okay then you've got to enforce that right you got to take them to the tribunal and correct right yep. so it's a lot of times there's an imbalance of power right with a landlord and a, and a tenant is 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 by and large with the residential uh, tenancies act well that's changing too the 2018 negative rentals we should do a whole yep. one on uh, tenants landlord tenancy that's a, yeah. that's a good subject for another day. But but the reality of it, it, it's really important to have that clause in your agreement, specifically spell out your intentions, right? In terms of what you're doing with that renter. Don't overlook that clause, right? It's extremely, extremely, extremely important because on closing date, you know, if there's just very loose language in it that they're going to give the notice to a tenant, then you can be in a position where you don't have a place to go. The tenant's still in there, and Trev, what happens then, from a financing perspective, when you're 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 buying this property as a primary residence, and on closing, the tenant's still in there. Yep. Yeah. So it, it'll depend, right? Um, yeah. It depends. No, but I mean, it just throws an extra ball in, curveball in. It, it sure does. Right? Well, see so what I do when I'm buying a house with tenants in it. I make sure that we have three or four days since when they evict, you know, so if it's the end of the month, we'll close on like a fourth or a fifth. Mm -hmm. And then I'm making sure I do a walkthrough before I get there. So there's no surprises on close because depending on how I write the deal, like I want vacant possession. If they're in breach, I should have the choice to. To like compensation closing. or different, well, different consequences. It's all timing, Jeff. Right. And that's why I'm seeing a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of realtors, uh, love them you know that but in this particular clause they don't get it particularly right sometimes or there's a misunderstanding on one of the one of the realtors part in terms of what what uh, what's truly going to happen right or what happens in a situation where you just ask for them to give a notice not necessarily to evict give them a notice to evict mm -hmm. well that's that you can take six to eight months to get a tenant out of out of a property 
from from that point forward, right? So, and you've got a closing date in three months because you say give the tenant two months notice. Well, usually you're asking for, I think it's an N11, right? To get them to sign it, to show that they are going to move out and it's signed well, by the tenant. No, that's well, a mutual that's, mutual that's a different... agreement to end tenancy with the Correct. N11. Well, but you can get that done though, right? If you say 60 days from the beginning of the next month, can you sign this N11? You're agreeing to get out at the end of the month and all that. Then you've got some kind of protection as the seller, right? If they don't want to do it, then you know right there there's a potential problem down the road. Correct. Yeah, but that's Usually not the when right you're doing form. an N11 though, you're greasing them though, right? What's that? You're usually greasing the tenant, right? Because that's an agreement to end the term, the tenant. Well, early. you can do cash for keys, right? And get them to sign that too, right? But there's, all, I, I forget what the other form is, N10 or something yeah. like that, that yeah. they are going to be gone at the end of the month because it's going to be taken over for immediate family. But you can get the tenant to acknowledge the proper form and sign it, right? And that make yep. that part of the deal. So Not everybody it, does it, but you can do that. Yeah, 100%. And that's, that's probably, you know, going further than a lot. Uh, do Jeff, but so well, then what if the tenant doesn't get out? Well, well, if they don't sign the paper in the first place, then you you've got an idea that there's going to be a problem yep. down the road, right? And then you can tackle yep. it two months ahead of time, 100%. as opposed to on closing. See, look, I don't get that paper. Like, let's kill this deal. So you what? Because then you have a potential paper, tenant for it. What if you get the paper and the tenant still doesn't move out on the closing day? That's a whole different headache, then, right there. Right. Then but, you got to go uh, tribunal, and then good luck. That's yeah, months and, and months and months. But then, but then if you put it in the offer that you want vacant possession on closing and it's not, and then you go through the day before closing with a walkthrough, it's not there. Technically the seller's in breach of contract, right? Correct. Correct. So potentially the buyer could walk in the deal unless they needed the house. They have no other place to go, right? Which could happen. Well, they can so, put them in breach, right? Yeah. Right. At, the end, at the end of the day, you're in breach of contract if you're not able to fulfill your, your end of the obligation. And See, this is one thing I find in real estate that it's, it's, it's very loosey goosey that breach very. of contract can become a very strong thing that happens, right? Using the term alone is big, but the other thing, fraud is thrown around so much, you know, that you're saying, for example, if you're a buyer and you're going to take over for immediate family and you don't, that is fraud right there. Cause yep. you're, signing a, you're signing a legal document saying that you will do it and you don't, you know, there's bigger repercussions. It's not just fraud. It's, yep. It's yeah. potentially, you know, well, a twenty-five thousand dollar fine by the tribunal for your first offense. Yeah, there's well, difference fraudulent to criminal fraud, right, and and yeah. and, and uh, civil fraud, right, or a fraud that leads to civil damages. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, look at take take that clause seriously when you're dealing with any kind of tenanted property because it's not too often it's loosey goose too loosey goosey and. You know, from a closing perspective, we run into more issues with rental properties on close than non than just residential resale. See, best advice is if you're a realtor, work for Royal Page NRC because we have a great schedule for that. Brad <laughs> oh, and Ryan do great plug. Shameless yeah. plug. You can call me uh, that. It's my nickname. So, but if we, you're we, unsure, reach out to to your professionals. Right. Yeah. Make sure you get the answer. Make sure it's the language and it's it's understandable to you that yes, I, I I know for sure that I'm able to move into this place on closing, or else they're in breach of contract, right? If it's true vacant possession that you want. Yeah. So we're gonna uh we, we've got some great new topics for the next time that we go live. Yeah, um, Melissa, we'll do one for you about renovations for sure. Yeah, so we got so Melissa, we hear you. We're gonna definitely do something about renos. Collins, you're on it. And I just got I just got word Vin Diesel's in for our uh, 
for our next <laughs> uh, our next recording. He's he's all over it. So he's he's. We should get Vin it. Diesel and Carlo and comp their voices. See if they can both. Oh do yeah, it. I think they're yeah. pretty damn. Vin close, Diesel's not doing anything right now. He's got more yeah, of a no. voice of Barry Manilow though. No, you think so? No, oh, okay, maybe. Bondo, we're gonna tackle the next time as well. What was the other thing that we wanted to talk about? That, that's um, a good poll for next time. What's his voice sound like? Barry Man, right. Vin Diesel, yeah. and all that. Sure, we do have sure. poll results here, right? Oh, yeah, we do. Uh, yeah, rookie, what's the uh, what are the poll results for the RV? Can you put them on the screen? No, should you take a dump on an RV? Oh, on an RV. Was Trevor the only one that answered our poll here? I think Trevor was the only one that answered. I think so. That is not true. Shit, Trevor, you liar. You, you're tanking it. Nope. No. I didn't. All right. Well, wrong. Wrong. I, I want to put my vote in and see how it switches it. 100%. All right. Good thing I wasn't um, So we're going to be we'll, – we'll wrap this We'll wrap this episode up, and yeah. then we're going to go to a, a clip that we want Bondo to, to, to talk about. Um, I'll briefly just chat about the um, Ontario budget that was released yesterday. So a couple things for people to realize as we're as we're chatting about this, uh, April 29th, 2022, um, the, it it will not pass the legislature. It will not go through the Ontario legislature. Uh, yeah, and true. Good job, <laughs> Melissa. Who craps on an RV? Nobody craps on an RV. It's we in the, the RV, RV, not on the RV. That's totally fine. Um, Maybe we should and... crap on his RV. <laughs> um, and uh, so. Yeah, besides Amber Heard. Oh, that is a great segue. That is such a great segue, actually. Um, so we're going to get to that in a second, uh, Melissa. So just two seconds on that. Um, so the that's hilarious. Um, so, yes, we do have a deficit. It's going to be just shy of $19 billion. Um, In oh, essence, it? it is up $5.4 from the most recent fiscal year. Um, and basically, but the government is forecasting a 4% increase, uh, to, to its, to its revenues, uh, and aims to have the books balanced by the 2027 and 2028 tax year. The reason why it's important to know that this won't pass the, uh, the legislature is because it usually takes three readings, then it has to get Royal assent, et cetera, et cetera. It's a majority government currently in the province of Ontario. However, here's the key. We have to go to the polls by June 2nd. Have to. And therefore, you need at least, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, a 30-day um, campaigning period. Back it out. We have The election has to be called by Monday. Has to. So there's no way that this budget is getting passed because it usually takes weeks for that to happen. So this is the budget. This is the campaign promise. It's been tabled in the in in the um, in the provincial parliament. Can't they filibuster it so, or something? No, that's that's the U.S. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but yeah, it's close. I mean, they technically can filibuster. It does exist, but you know, not not to the same effect as <laughs> as the U.S. Um, so the government has not cut income taxes by twenty percent, which was initially planned. But what they did do was increase the low-income individuals and family tax credit. So basically, this is the low-income workers tax credit, which is a non-refundable tax credit. Uh, that that amount will be, they plan to be, um, yeah, good question, Melissa. I have no idea where they expect to have that income coming from. I, I can't figure it out. Um, from 38500 to 50000 they have implemented a new Ontario Seniors Care at Home tax credit for seniors age 70 and older, and they will refund um, 
25% of their medical expenses up to a maximum credit of 1500 bucks. So that's six grand of medical expenses. They'll give you back 1500, um, 25 billion on highways, uh, 10 billion on healthcare infrastructure. So if there's a hospital being built, one massive one happening in Mississauga, one happen massive one happening in Grimsby and Niagara South, those are all green lit. There is funding there for it. Um, 764 million over the next two years to provide nurses with $5,000 retention bonus. Let me tell you, my heart goes out to all the nurses and PSWs and paramedics out there. God love you all. This is long, long overdue. And quite frankly, a $5,000 retention bonus for what you all do is not enough, but at least and it's something. <laughs> what you guys do, my God, uh, just big, big hearts and, and love for you guys. Um, one billion will be spent on retaining and reskilling programs. So basically, you know, people want to go back to school and, and increase their skill. Uh, 14 billion will be granted to capital grants for schools over the next 10 years. Now, you need to put that into context. The Global Mail has reported that uh, just the Toronto District School Board alone, their, those repairs have a backlog of around 3.7 billion. So that's not including anything else. Um, we've got, uh, oh, here, starting July 1st, if this government is reelected into majority territory, meaning they can pass this budget as is after the June 2nd election, they will knock off 5.7 cents per <coughs> liter to gas, to gasoline, um, starting July 1st for six months. Um, let me just see if only that would have helped Laurentian University. I don't know what that means. Is there a Laurentian University piece? I'm not too sure. Um, 12 billion in new investment for new vehicle production and battery manufacturing. That's huge for Ontario. So if you guys have been following um, the Ring of Fire, we will talk about that the next time. This is going to be huge for Ontario. Um, and... Yours finally had 61 a billion ring of fire back 2005. I'm going to put a ring of fire in Trevor's RV. <laughs> That's up 61, north, right? 61 billion. Yes, up north. The ring of fire. Google it. It's great. It's just been green. It's, it's, it's in the process of being greenlit right now. Um, and 61 billion in capital over 10 years for public transit. Go train and increasing the go train network making it daily and more frequent and of course they've now figured after all the refunds have been sent for license plate stickers it wasn't a billion it was 1.8 billion oh, so <laughs> take that uh, all in um and you know to cutting red tape which is what collins was talking about the last time around 8.9 billion to support employees and small businesses and, and um, red tape reductions. So that's pretty good. So this is a fairly um, socially focused budget. Um, I don't know, boys, if you want to comment on that quickly, anything, any questions on that? No, no, no one cares. My only comments was on the, there was a taxation of the banks. I think we addressed it last time too, right? Oh yeah, like, that's like, federally. That's federal. This is Ontario. Yep. So, Come on, Bond. Um, all right, Rook. If you want to key up the, the 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 clip of the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard piece, 
Woo! You didn't know what could cause damage to Mr. Depp's hand while you were there on March 8th, correct? Dr. Kipper told me he sustained an injury on uh, one of his well, fingers. Well, uh, rejection, hearsay. hearsay. Wait, you, you asked the question. Okay. Oh. Next question. Okay, you said he sustained <laughs> an injury to his finger. You got it. You, he objected to his own question. Go ahead, Bondo. He's hired. I can't, man. I can't. I mean, the only other beautiful thing that I've seen like this was that gentleman when we were going to online. Uh, poor older fella. And uh, he couldn't get, <laughs> he probably still knew more about technology than me. And he come on, uh, I think he had the virtual court and uh, he had a picture of a cat, right? Yes, right. Yes. <laughs> And he told the court, your officer, I promise I'm not a cat. I'm a real human being, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, I mean, I, look, you've got, you got a varying degree. You know, when you're, you're up questioning a witness, it's, it's stressful. So, I mean, I feel a little bit for him, but it's one of the stupidest questions I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> or, right? I mean, it's, you're objecting to your own line of questioning, which is absurd, right? Which everybody knows. Well, uh, let me tell you, that was hilarious. What can you do? And it's funny that uh, one of our listeners had alluded to uh, her. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, yeah, and that no, was I funny mean, that I, Melissa actually, uh, yeah, she 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 referenced Heard, uh, which is that was her lawyer that could uh, that objected to her <laughs> own uh, their own questioning. That's hilarious. So to everyone, we're going to wrap this lawyers. up. Um, we're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening on Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube. Um, for We love you all. Uh, to sending your questions, info at professionalinsight.ca. That's some uh, quality Thank you. That's Brand Boulevard. Um, to our sponsors. Um, Take us away, Brando. Next, next ep- well, not yet. Ne- next oh, episode, yeah. I wanna, we're going to be talking about uh, some more legal stuff as well. We'll, we'll, we'll get that to you. Uh, Trevor's going to tackle some, some mortgage approval, uh, some stuff as well. Collins, we already got yours. Um, and then we are, we're going to have, uh, Vin Diesel on, not the actual Vin Diesel, our Vin Diesel, uh, about flooring and, and home improvements. And then finally, we're going to have, we're going to start it off with a mental health expert. And we're going to be talking about mental health, the importance of mental health in the workplace, for about a half hour, 45 minutes. So if you have any questions about that, please uh, send them over. Bondo, send us out. It, he is a crappy lawyer to question himself like that. So help us help you stay informed. Thanks, everybody. Ciao. <laughs>
Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Hey, 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 hey. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.